welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 33 of the Madden America podcast. This week we interviewed Dr. Lucy Johnstone. Lucy is a clinical psychologist, trainer, speaker and writer and a long-standing critic of the biomedical model of psychiatry. She has worked in adult mental health settings for many years, alternating with academic posts. Lucy has authored a number of books, including Users and Abusers of Psychiatry and A Straight-Talking Introduction to Psychiatric Diagnosis, as well as a number of articles and chapters on topics such as psychiatric diagnosis, formulation and the role of trauma in breakdown. Lucy kindly took time out to talk to me about the new Power Threat Meaning Framework, recently released by the Division of Clinical Psychology of the British Psychological Society. Lucy, thank you so much for talking with me today for the Madden America podcast. And to begin, many of Madden America's regular readers will be familiar with you and your work, but for those who aren't, I wanted to ask about you and what led to you wanting to be a clinical psychologist. Hi James, it's good to be talking together again. I've been a clinical psychologist for a very long time. I've worked in a number of different settings, um, in practice, in academic settings, in training. I'm currently describing myself as a self-employed trainer and I've always been interested in adult mental health work and I've done a lot of um, teaching and writing and public speaking as well as that. And um, there's a theme that runs throughout that which is being kind of quite critical of dominant theories and practices in mental health. And how did I get into it in the first place? Well, briefly, like many mental health professionals, we end up here for reasons. Uh, the reasons lie in you know, quite a lot of painful, difficult experiences that I went through myself as a child, adolescent, and as a young woman. And being the kind of person I was, and being the kind of era it was, uh, my way of coping with that was to kind of I, I was the world's most boring teenager, by the way, was to hide away in my room and read Jung. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's a bit of a confession, isn't it? And, you know, at one level, that was a bit sad. At another level, from a very early age, I was taking on the general idea that there are reasons for people to feel distressed and upset. And it always made sense to me like that. I never thought it was any different. And really, that's been a theme that I've carried throughout my work. Thank you. And it seems appropriate then to move on to talk about the new Power Threat Meaning Framework, recently released by the Division of Clinical Psychology of the British Psychological Society. But before we dive into the document, I wanted to ask if we could perhaps briefly explore some of the reasons why we need an alternative to diagnosis. So what are some of the problems with the way we currently conceive of and respond to emotional trauma or distress? Okay, um, we discussed this in an earlier interview, didn't we? You interviewed me a while ago, which is also on the Madden America site. And at that time, I said rather at greater length than I'm going to just now, is that, of course, it's very important to acknowledge that people's experiences of distress are very real. But um, what we need to do, in my view, and in the view of many other people, is to question the explanation for that distress. So the current explanation, the dominant explanation, is that these are illnesses that need diagnosing. And interestingly, um, that has never been supported by research. So we have a model that is basically, that is based on believing that people need to have these illnesses diagnosed. And because of that, it is not only not helpful very often, although sometimes it's of some help, but often I would say 
actually very damaging and there are consequences like the long-term effects of drugs which can be, be very unhelpful for people. So in a nutshell, as I said, we're turning with people with problems into patients with illnesses and in a way that's routinely imposed on them. People are not offered alternatives and not only is that, I think, quite wrong in itself, at the same time it screens off um, any alternative way of understanding people's distress, which is nearly always rooted in people's lives. There's a lot of research to support that. So some people would argue, well, that's not all we do. We also look at people's lives and circumstances, and to an extent that's true, but the basic model remains the same. We routinely diagnose people, tell them they have illnesses or disorders, offer them drugs as the main treatment, take them to hospital, think that doctors and nurses are the best people to see them, and so on and so on. What we actually need is a shift in the common survivor slogan from asking what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. And, you know, to put it at its briefest, that's what we've tried to do in the um, Power Threat Meaning Framework. Well, certainly having read most of the Power Threat Meaning Framework, it seems to me like a hugely exciting step forward and quite a step away from diagnostic classifications. I understand it was a five-year journey for the project team, so I wanted to ask what that journey was like. That's um, a big question, and the odd thing is that we kind of decided to do this sort of by accident. <laughs> so it just happened that by coincidence, in a hotel room in Manchester in November 2012, a group of us uh, met at the same place to do some other recordings, and um, we decided to just start exploring the idea of what would a conceptual alternative to psychiatric diagnosis look like. So we'd set aside some time, and as I remember it, there was a kind of explosive five-hour conversation with everybody kind of sparking ideas off each other and it was obvious there was a huge amount of energy attached to this question and this was essentially the core project team as it remained in that room and of course we are all people who've been thinking about this for many years and it you know clearly this was an idea that was extraordinarily interesting and yet even for those of us who'd been thinking about this for a long time, extraordinarily challenging. And it kind of started that way, and it continued for literally years longer than we thought it ever would. And it's one of those things where if you'd known how much blood, sweat, and tears it was going to involve, you probably never started it, so it's probably just as well you didn't know. We've come out the other end. We're all still speaking to each other. <laughs> we're all still friends. I think we collectively feel, you know, this is not a perfect product, but we're very proud of it. And as you say, not just in my case, but in the case of all of us, I think it does feel like a culmination of, in my and Mary's case particularly, um, 30 years just about of exploring alternatives. Collectively as a group, we bring a great deal of clinical research, academic and lived experience to this question. We have all for many years been convinced we need an alternative diagnosis. Um, Mary Boyle and I were the lead authors. We actually met in 1990 when I'd published my book. She'd published her book, Schizophrenia, A Scientific Delusion, and I'd published my book, Users and Abusers of Psychiatry. The year before that started a 30-year conversation in a way that has never ended and that in some ways this project feels like a kind of end result of, although it's also a start of it. We are seeing this as the start of a, of a second stage of a further journey. And it was an extraordinarily difficult process, extraordinarily difficult process. So I think I would say it's a bit hard to remember looking back that we spent about two or three years kind of wandering in the wilderness. That's what it felt a bit like, the intellectual wilderness. 
And um, Mary, on a number of occasions, said to me, this is the most difficult academic task I've ever attempted, which always comforted me, because I thought, well, if Mary thinks it's difficult, it really is difficult. And all of that was necessary, and a number of false turnings were necessary in order finally for us, for this, the resulting document to take shape. A long and difficult journey, but, you know, we as a project team, I think, feel we're in a very different position from where we started. So I guess our hope is that at least some people will be able to kind of follow us on that journey, as, as it were, and end up you know, in a similar place or taking the kind of perspective that we've come to take and hopefully getting something useful from that. Well, thank goodness that you and the others were willing to tolerate the difficult times and proceed with this work. So yourself and Mary Boyle were on the project team, and and who else was involved? Um, Yes, there was a core group of nine. So there's me, Mary, there's um, John Crombie, Jackie Dillon, Dave Harper, Peter Kinderman, Eleanor Longdon, Dave Pilgrim, and John Reed, and we had the support of a research assistant, um, Kate Allsop. And so we're all people who've known each other really quite well for a number of years. Um, and uh, but that we as the we also involved a number of other people in addition to the core project team. Uh, Jackie and Eleanor, of course, are survivors and identify as activists and campaigners, um, as well as being writers and trainers and researchers. The rest of us are psychologists. All of us, all of the rest are clinical psychologists, apart from John Crombie, who's an academic psychologist. Um, so we also involved um, a consultancy group of service user stroke carers, uh, a group of eight who um, advised us on the document as it proceeded and gave us feedback. We also involved a group of what we called critical readers with a particular remit to advise us on diversity issues to make sure that we had thoroughly um, accommodated those. A number of people helpfully supplied good practice examples of existing existing good practice that isn't reliant on diagnostic categories. Those are in the appendix appendices of the overview. And we had some other contributions as well from people who contributed little bits of the document. I think out of those people, I'd particularly mention um, Phil Wilshire, who's a social worker who did a lot of work around the kind of welfare, you know, policy documents, benefits aspect of it. So the larger group was about 40 in all, so quite a big project group. And Lucy, it's always difficult when you say to someone, describe something in a nutshell, but is it possible to describe the main aims of the document in summary? I can have a go. <laughs> so, I mean, you're right, you've picked up that we're seeing this as a first stage and a conceptual resource. That That's something that some people haven't picked up. You know, this is not a policy document. This is not a plan for services. This is not a go off and do this document. Um, and it's not an official division of clinical psychology or British Psychological Society position. It was funded by the Division of Clinical Psychology. But it's, it is, you know, they fund a number of documents of various types, obviously, uh, most of which are not official policy or, you know, official professional practice standards. And this is one of those, in a sense, it's a kind of academic discussion document. And it is quite dense. And, um, you know, it had to be to, to try and fulfill the, the very ambitious purposes that we had for it, which is about outlining a complete alternative or as complete as we can to the di- to the diagnostic model of mental, of mental and emotional distress, distress and human suffering. So our starting point was that we have been sold, if you like, 
a model for what is essentially about human emotional distress and suffering, which was designed for malfunctioning bodies. And it actually works pretty well for something wrong with your body. It, it is not appropriate. It is fundamentally inappropriate for understanding humans' thoughts, human thoughts, feelings and behaviours, human struggles, human suffering. So we wanted to get away from what Mary called the DSM mindset, which is, or it could equally be called the ICD mindset, because they're pretty much the same. These kind of very deeply rooted assumptions, which as we unpicked them, we realised are not to, just to do with, you know, a particular diagnostic manual. This way of thinking is deeply rooted in, you know, the whole of Western culture, basically, going back to the Enlightenment, going back further than that, going back to the Greeks, you know, there's... The conceptual underpinnings are very, very deep-rooted. And although most ordinary people in the street would say, I don't know a lot about mental health, at the same time, these ideas have taken a very deep hold in the minds of, of the general public. So we wanted to undo all of that, undo all of that. And while recognising that we already have quite a lot of non-diagnostic ways of um, supporting people, you know, narrative work or formulation work or contract work or psychosocial interventions of various sorts. What we don't have is something to support that at a, a conceptual level, if you like, a really sound evidence-based alternative to what diagnosis claims to do and fails to do. And in a nutshell, what diagnosis claims to do, and at least in psychiatry we believe fails to do, is to identify patterns in distress. That's what diagnosis fundamentally is. It's about identifying patterns. So the word schizophrenia, for example, is meant to identify a kind of a pattern of similar expressions of distress with some broadly similar causes and outcomes and might lead to some broadly indications about what treatments would work and so on. And everything else that diagnosis does or tries to do is based on those um, high, those patterns that um, diagnosis is meant to be identifying, so access to welfare, access to services, administrative decisions, basis for research, and so on and so on. So the aim of um, trying to outline an alternative is to produce something that not only is a much better way of identifying patterns in distress, but also performs these other functions much better. But we wanted it, we were very clear from the start, that what we wanted to do was produce a way of identifying patterns that is suitable for human beings who actively make choices and create meaning in their lives, who have agency and, and are meaning makers, to use kind of rather jargon terms. And that's fundamentally different, as I say, from seeing people as having, you know, developed something or having some disorder. Mm. Um, okay, and as well as the more general purposes that diagnosis claims and fails to do and that we hope our approach does better, a very important purpose is to support people to be able to tell their stories. In essence, what diagnosis does too often is obscure someone's story. You know, we stop asking, we stop looking, we stop believing there's a story very often. And, you know, the patterns that we identify, we, we've provisionally identified, are to do with narratives, meanings and stories, and we believe can support the construction or the co-construction of people's personal stories group stories, community stories. Mm. And uh, as you say, we've done it. Um, 
and we never really thought to be on the first stage. This is the end of the first stage, and I think our feeling was a bit, well, we want to kind of release it into the wild, if you like, and see what happens. Do Are people interested? Do people want to run with it? Are they interested in taking it up? Are the people who want to develop it further? Because it's a, a work in progress. It really, really is meant to be a work in progress. We had, we had no idea. We still don't have a lot of idea, but even after a month, we have some idea. So... Mm. Might talk a bit about that later about the reaction. We will come on to that, and it's interesting. The document is quite dense and quite complex, but it feels like it needs to be because, as I mentioned to you before, a phrase that leapt out for me during my reading was it acknowledges the irreducible complexity of people's responses to their circumstances, and I love that it allows space for that complexity. I wondered if we could turn a bit now to the title, because that title is fairly fundamental to how the whole thing operates, isn't it? And I wondered if you could explain that a little bit for me. I will do, yes. It's called the Power Threat Meaning Framework, and the main document has a long and not at all catchy subtitle. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it's important to have, particularly with a very complicated, dense document, which this is, as you rightly say, some fairly simple hooks to hang it on. And it's important for us in developing it to kind of have the same kind of hooks. And actually this power threat meaning kind of three-part question, if you like, uh, or four-part if you include threat response, kind of emerged about two years into the document. And once that had emerged, I think I and Mary started to feel, well, we sort of outline the territory. We we do have a kind of map that we're following from now on. So... In trying to make this uh, very complex set of ideas more simple, we have suggested that um, you can ask four main questions which apply possibly to individuals, but possibly to social groups, possibly to families, possibly to communities and so on. And essentially, these four questions are an expansion of the survivor slogan, as I mentioned earlier, instead of asking what's wrong with you, ask what's happened to you. So if I just talk you through those. Thank you. So um, what has happened to our starting point? And in power threat meaning terms, we've translated that as how is power operating in your life? Now, we don't mean you literally sit down in front of someone with a pen and say, how is power operating in your life? What we mean is um, we have unpicked this at some length in the document. What we mean is there are a huge range of forms of power that operate in terms in everyone's life positively, very often supportive, protective, and so on, but often negatively, and negatively very often, of course, leads to distress. So we've outlined the many forms of power that exist, and some of these are very obvious. You know, we all know that people in services are like to to perhaps to have very difficult personal relationships in which they may have been hurt and traumatized and abused. Some of these are more subtle like kind of being excluded from social resources and particularly from the means to make sense of your own experience. In other words, having certain meanings imposed on you, having meaning and language and agendas controlled in ways that may be beyond your awareness by all sorts of means from the person you meet in mental health services to the media to, you know, almost, you know, the, the source of all the kind of norms and expectations that we all feel we have to live up to. So that ideological power, that notion, the power to control meanings, language and agendas is very, very, very central to the whole document. And we see the process of telling someone they have a psychiatric illness 
as a very good example of the imposition of ideological power. This is not a fact. You know, this is, although people aren't told this, this is a particular viewpoint that supports and is supported by many vested interests and has never actually had any evidence to support it. So that's power. What has happened to you? The next question, how did it affect you? In the framework terms, we, call, we translate that as what kinds of threats does this pose? And we mean threats at all sorts of levels. This is threats to your body, threats to your... Uh, to your relationships, threats to your sense of security, threats to your place in the social group, and so on. What sense did you make of it in PTM terms? What is the meaning of these situations and experiences? And again, most clinicians, if we're talking about clinicians, although we see the framework as applying more widely than that, most clinicians will be asking people, at least to some extent, about the meaning of these ex of your experiences. But we're um, looking at that much more broadly in terms of not just personal meaning, I felt ashamed, I felt guilty, etc., etc., but in terms of the social norms, you know, why are people encouraged to feel guilty or ashamed or silenced in certain ways and for certain reasons? And out of those, you know, social norms support ideological power very often. So it's about putting back that much bigger context again. The final important question, what did you have to do to survive? So we're translating that as what kinds of threat response are you using? Um, the framework draws on a whole range of different approaches, and a lot of this is not new stuff. So particular, particularly when I talk about this, people will recognize quite a lot from trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed approaches. So threat responses uh, are evolved, embodied, embodied responses that start from, you know, automatic fight, flight, freeze responses and work all the way up to more consciously chosen strategies and ways of surviving. Symptoms are survival strategies. In the framework terms, they are threat responses. Mm -hmm. So they're there for a reason. They're things people do, not things people have. And we want to emphasize that these are not four separate things like, you know, bio plus psycho plus social. You cannot talk about power without implying threat. You cannot really talk about threat without thinking about its meaning. You cannot talk about threat without thinking about threat responses. So the four questions are a sort of convenient hook, as I say, but they're not meant to be taken rigidly or literally. None of it is. And... If you want to sit down one-to-one -one with someone or do this yourself, because this is very much, we hope, about, you know, you can do this yourself, you can think about this yourself. It doesn't have to be part of a professional interaction, although it might be. You, you might want to think also about what are your strengths. Um, in the framework terms, this means what access to power resources do you have, all sorts of things from, you know, friends who can help you out or whatever, to community rituals and faiths and beliefs and whatever else. And finally, to put it together, what is your story? How does this all fit together for you personally? This might be a good moment to mention that one of the resources you can link to at the end, if you wish, is a very loose, adaptable suggestion for a guided discussion which you can use on your own or which you might want to use to support a peer or a friend or which you might want to use as a clinician to start exploring how these questions and hence how the framework might apply to a particular person. Mm -hmm. So those are the four questions and by exploring the answer to those four questions 
we get to the point of being able to outline patterns in distress, which I might talk a bit more about in a minute. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. So, Lucy, what is the relation of this to formulation-based practice? I know that you've written about that in the past. So, is this like formulation? Okay, one of the things we were really keen for this not to be, the framework is a kind of psychology document. Mm. (laughs) We've been very critical about, um, with a capital P, psychiatric theory. We've been just about equally critical, I think, of, of a lot of psychological theory. And we've drawn on a range of approaches that go well beyond psychiatry and, psycho- and psychology, both in terms of practice and in terms of principles. So it's, and as you know, a formulation is um, one way, a kind of semi-structured way of putting together someone's story, usually guided by and in conjunction with a professional. And I've written a lot about it and done a lot of training in it. But this really, really, really isn't about formulation as such and one of the things that's annoyed me about some of the reactions is people saying oh it's an a little extra formulation tool for us to use well you know we're attempting something much bigger than that maybe we've totally failed but uh, we're actually attempting such something much bigger than that so a very very small percentage of the document of the vast document is devoted to formulation a large percentage is do- devoted to the term narrative, which is our preferred term because it's much more inclusive. Mm. So by narrative, we mean you know almost anything that helps someone to make sense of their life. And that doesn't have to be something written, doesn't have to involve a professional. It could involve art, community, poetry, all sorts of you know human activities. Human beings are meaning makers and, and narrative creators. So narrative in general. Now, of course, there are some implications for making formulation as a specific practice more um, inclusive and more thoughtful and more aware of the influence of power. And we've got those suggestions in there. But that's, as I say, that's a pretty small part of it. And Lucy, you mentioned different cultures there. So what does the power threat meaning framework have to say about distress in non-Western cultures? One of the many problems that DSM and ICD have always had is how do we make sense of expressions and experiences of distress from non-Western or non-Westernized cultures that look very different from ours? Mm. And you, um, the um, authors and researchers who contribute to DSM have puzzled a great deal about this. You know, this, this thing that people seem to do in certain parts of the world, is it really schizophrenia? Is it a local version of bipolar disorder? All these kind of from my point of view, absolutely pointless and misguided questions. How can we squeeze these back into a Western framework, in essence? And usually it hasn't been possible to do that, so they appear in a kind of appendix in DSM called culture-bound syndromes. And from a framework point of view, you know, all expressions of distress are culture-bound. You know, they're based on meaning. They, They are shaped deeply, inevitably, by the particular culture within their rise, within which they arise. They're all culture-bound syndromes. And so from a framework position, this is not a problem. It's a problem for DSM and ICD. It's not a problem for the for the PTM framework. Mm-hmm. Because from a framework perspective, um, at a very basic level, we all have certain core needs. You know, we all are subject to the operation of power. We all need to be part of a group. We all have needs to be safe and protected and have enough material resources to live on, and and so on and so on. We all respond to threats in certain ways that at a very basic level are mediated by bodily reactions that we all share because we're part of the same species. We're all meaning-making creatures. So at a 
very basic level, the principles of power, threat, meaning of threat response apply across cultures. And the further you go up, the more room there is um, for particular you know, influences of local variations and meanings so that the end result may look very different, may look rather strange to westernised eyes, but that is not a problem from the point of view of the framework mm. and it's absolutely not a reason for saying this is something that needs to be translated back into terms that DSM can understand. Mm. As you probably know, there is a movement that I think is very regrettable, which is the movement for global mental health, which is essentially about exporting, exporting Western models of mental distress across the world. And the implication of the framework is that we absolutely should not do this. This is absolutely wrong, absolutely unnecessary. And we don't need to export the framework either, but we can use the framework in order to remind ourselves that we there are many local and culturally specific ways of understanding and healing distress which to be honest we have a great deal to learn from mm. we probably have more to learn from those than you know people who may see things to some extent differently have to learn from the more dominant culture absolutely so we've covered a lot of ground there so to sum up, what would you say the differences are between the PTM framework and current classification systems? Okay, I'm going to sum up with a few points, if that's okay. Mm. I mean, this, this is a long and complex document, so I mean, I would strongly urge people to read it if they think they might have the strength to plough through it. <laughs> but if I try to put it in a nutshell, we started off by talking about um, identifying patterns, and we talked about the need to move away from what are essentially patterns in biology, the patterns that explain, you know, really quite successfully, very often what goes wrong with our bodies, to a very different kind of pattern. And the single thing to grasp here, I think, is the patterns we have identified provisionally, there's a lot of work to be done on them, are organized by meaning, not by biology. Mm. Okay, so our, our phrase is... These are embodied, meaning-based threat responses to the negative operation of power. It takes a little bit of getting your head around that, but essentially that's the nature of the patterns we're thinking about. Now, as soon as you grasp the idea that these patterns are organized by meaning and all sorts of other things follow, like, of course, patterns are going to be loose and overlapping. They're going to have regularities. There will be general patterns, but they're not going to have clear-cut edges like we're supposed to have in, in medicine or biology. Mm. They will vary across time historically because cultures vary. They will vary across the world because, you know, equally cultures vary across different parts of the globe. So we need to give up the futile hope that we'll find specific clear patterns, causal patterns. This happened here and this was the end result. We won't find those in biological terms, nor will we find those in psychological terms or psychosocial terms. And I think there's some equally misguided research going on that way. You know, we are never going to find, let's say, childhood sexual abuse equals, you know, hallucinations. It doesn't work like that. So we're trying to move right away from that. And we're talking about Things people do, not things people have. These patterns describe things people do. So we use the verb form to title the patterns. Surviving social exclusion, for example, is part of the title of one of the patterns. Not things people have. I have an antisocial personality disorder. Mm. Might be another way of describing someone who aligns themselves with that patterns. 
And these are not patterns for people. People's experiences will cut across patterns. They're not patterns for diagnoses. They cut across diagnoses. They're not patterns for settings. These are not about mental health versus addictions versus criminal justice. These are not patterns for mentally ill people, in inverted commas. This is not a new classification or categorization system for people who are described as mentally ill. This is about all of us. This is about all of us as human beings who all struggle at times and try to get our needs met. Mm. So that's the essential difference. Um, I guess if I wanted to highlight some aspects within that, I would want to say that this is very, this is very much about including the role of biology. That's a common criticism, isn't it, of people who try to move away from diagnosis. So you're denying the role of biology. We're absolutely not denying the role of biology, but we are including it as a mediator and enabler of all human experience, but mm. not something that it's always helpful to see or accurate to see as a kind of primary cause. Mm. Um, the role of power, again, as I say, I really want to emphasize that. If there's one big thing we want to put back in the picture, it's power and social justice. So... In terms of the framework, it's about restoring the links between threats, threats that come from the negative operation of power at all levels, and threat responses, the things we call symptoms. Uh, in a less jargony term, it's about restoring the link between personal distress and social injustice. And diagnosis steps in to sever that link very neatly, so we can no longer see it. And there are all sorts of other interests in severing that link. We want to restore that link and make it so clear and obvious that actually nobody can ever again pretend that it's not there and be blind to it. Well, that's an ambitious aim. But I mean, we all need to have ambitious aims and then we'll kind of see how far we're able to push towards those. But essentially, this framework is about social justice. It's about the kind of world we live in. It's about the responsibility we'll have for making it more inclusive and safe and you know, it's, it's, it's about all of us. And Lucy, now that the framework is in the wild, as it were, I wondered what the reaction has been and what your hopes and aspirations are for the future of this approach. Well, the, the reaction's been what we expected, but more. <laughs> Both ways, positive and negative, which is interestingly absolutely predicted by the framework itself, isn't it? Because we are posing, I hope, this is part of our intention, a threat, a threat, capital T, to ideological power, capital P, and there have been lots of capital TR threat responses, as I would see them, you know, along with fair criticisms. So it's not about dismissing criticism. We, this is incomplete. This is an evolving work. We want it to be freely available to all. The British Psychological Society has generally generously made it available to all. It's a free download. That's very much what we wanted and one reason for applying for funding from them. So we want people to take run with it, but the response has been interesting. Let's say interesting. So from a less positive point of view, I've collected some of these adjectives because at one level they're kind of hilarious. You will be interested to know that the framework is unevidenced, Marxist, and right-wing, <laughs> and anti-psychiatry, and polemical, obviously written by Scientologists. <laughs> Marxist outright Scientologists, maybe there are some. And, you know, a lot of social media reaction has not been helpful. Although it's been, you know, it's been reasonably well balanced by some more helpful responses. And off social media in the real world, 
the response has been quite phenomenal. You know, we're four weeks in, and I mean, I won't list all the responses, but if nothing else, we have had overwhelming success in getting people talking. There's been about a blog a day since the framework came out. Um, I and my colleagues have been overwhelmed with interest, and that's from this country, from elsewhere, it's from research pe- researchers, it's from people on training programs, it's from clinicians, you know, equally perhaps more gratifyingly, it's from peer support groups, from people just saying, my story makes much more sense to me now. So I am a little bit worried that I've now filled my diary for the entire rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> we need to think about all this because, as I said, we really didn't think beyond the launch. You, you can't have the good stuff without the difficult stuff. So um, for all that it's quite challenging at times to work out how to deal with this, you know, I'm, we are immensely pleased with the reaction so far. And who knows what will be will be. But, you know, whatever, it's going to be a, a fascinating next part of the journey. Well, I'm delighted to hear that although you spent quite a bit of time getting to this point, that it's the start of a journey. It feels like it's now for a bigger community of people to take on and work out the next steps, the implementation, how to use it therapeutically and in what settings it can be used. Or to leave it entirely. I want to add that too. Or to leave it entirely. You know, this is an offering. People are absolutely free to disagree and ignore it. And Lucy, if people listening wanted to know more about the framework, perhaps they may be curious about integrating the framework into their therapeutic work. Where should they go to find out more about it? Um, I'm going to send you a link, which I'm sure you'll be able to put up at the end of the blog, which will take you to the existing resources. And keep looking at that link. There will be more. But this is on the British Psychological Society website. You can, if you're feeling uh, very brave and have a lot of time to spare, you can read all 414 words of the main document. You can read the 142 pages, uh, which are a subsection of the main document called the overview, which is the framework itself without the bits kind of leading up to it and details about the consultation and the um, reference, the, the, the long reference list and so on. We've there are a number of more accessible ways in, and there will be more, but at the moment, uh, the link will also take you to a two-page summary. Um, it will take you to a list of frequently asked questions. It will take you to a guided discussion, as I described earlier, for starting to think through these ideas in relation to your life or someone else's life. There will soon be um, a video of the main talks, um, which I hope will be an accessible way in for people you know, who prefer to listen rather than hear, rather than read. And we've tried very hard in that, in those talks to sort of simplify some of these complex ideas and pull them together in a way that's accessible to everybody. Mm. But keep watching, you know, we, there will be more resources in due course. That's great. And I just want to personally say thank you. This is such groundbreaking work. And I want to thank you and the project team for sticking with it. The approach resonated with me and I can see how I could use these principles in many areas of my life, not necessarily just in dealing with my issues. I think it's excellent. Thank you. That's really good to hear that feedback. And, you know, we welcome feedback of all kinds, because as I keep saying, it's imperfect, it's a work in progress, and we want people to feel they can be part of taking it forward if they wish. Well, I just want to thank Lucy for taking the time to take me through the Power Threat Meaning Framework. And if you want to access the document yourself, you can visit the post that accompanies this podcast on Madden America, where we'll provide a link. The link provided will take you to frequently asked questions, links to the main and the overview documents, a guided discussion, and a two-page summary. 
and in time there will be a video of the main talks from the launch. So thank you for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.